0: I'm Chad, I'm one of the pastors here, and as you're filling out in those black books, if you have any good leftover recipes for all of your turkey and fixins, let me know. Uh, Nancy did this awesome turkey cranberry slider that we had for lunch the next day, and it was really great. Well, it's Thanksgiving, and we are transitioning now into a time of Advent, the four Sundays before Christmas. So this is going to be something we're focusing on today. Have you ever started anything new? And whatever that was, whether it was a job or a hobby or a relationship, because it was new, even the the hard parts, the the difficult parts about it, were, were somewhat enjoyable. The excitement associated with something new oftentimes can carry you through to a point as i think back on my first winter in montana i had just graduated college i fell in with my big brother's group of friends they were very adventurous and one of the things that they encouraged me to do because they were doing was to to learn how to ski fresh powder now If you're going to be a skier and you want to ski the best snow, then you have to learn to ski powder. Well, it's different than groomed trails. Uh, Groomed trails are packed. Uh, If you fall on a groomed trail, you can pop right back up. When you fall into powder, that heavy, wet snow just kind of covers over you. And it's a real chore to get back up. Well, anyway, it was new. I was excited. So even those times that I fell face first into the snow or... My friends left me as they skied down the hill. I was okay with it. I was still excited. I was anticipating what might come next. In many ways, our our walk with God experientially, speaking not positionally, but just our experience of walking with God can feel somewhat similar, where maybe God moves us into a new season, and we're looking to him. ...with great anticipation. What are you going to do in and through me, Lord? And there's this dependency upon him. There's this this desire to praise him... ...because we're in this new, exciting season. But then the newness wears off. The job is now mundane. And perhaps a trial comes into your life... ...and that takes the primary focus... And the newness has lost its shine. It's lost its shimmer. And as time wears on, you become frustrated. You become disappointed. Perhaps you become discouraged in this season. Perhaps you might even relate to Jacob from our sermon last Sunday in Genesis 47 where he told Pharaoh up to that point he was 130 years old and he told Pharaoh few and evil have been the days of my sojourn we live in a fallen broken world we live in a world that is cursed and we can't depend on newness and excitement to carry us onward in our walk with God this morning, I want to talk about what we can do to cultivate in our hearts an anticipation and eagerness for the ongoing work that God's doing in us. And he is in each and every one of us. God is doing an ongoing work in us by the spirit. And I want to talk about how we can cultivate this anticipation, this eagerness for what he is doing. And for the ultimate Fulfillment of our salvation when the Lord returns, when we receive new bodies. So our passage this morning is Genesis 49. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis 49. And we're going to be beginning in verse 28. We're going to carry through Genesis 50 to verse 14. And it's a 20-verse passage. And in those 20 verses, the verb or the noun form for the word bury or grave is mentioned 14 times. And then we see the word for father 11 times. What what this tells us is the setting for our passage this morning is the death and the burial of Jacob, the father of the nation Israel. And he died at 147 years So this is a 17-year difference between when he made those comments to the Pharaoh about his days being evil and few to what he's going to tell now to his children right before his death. And what we're going to look at here is, is Jacob's farewell to his children and even Jacob's burial It's going to portray him in a different light. It's going to show us a man who in his walk with God... ...from those 17 years onward, something shifted in him. So there's two parts to this sermon. We're going to look at his farewell and then his burial. So our first part is Jacob's farewell. Over our lifetimes, over our lifetimes of walking with God... His matchless faithfulness proves to us that our dependence on Christ is enough both in life and death. Over our lifetimes of walking with God, his matchless faithfulness proves to us that Christ is enough for all matters related to our life and our death. In our first section here, we're going to see the final moments of Jacob's life. It portrays a man who anticipated the day that he and his fathers would eternally possess the promised land. We see a man who is anticipating that he will receive God's promise that he and his fathers would possess the promised land. So begin with me in chapter 49, verse 28, and we're going to read through 33. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each one with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephraim the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, He drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. In verse 29 here, we see that Jacob commands his sons to bury him with his fathers. That is with Abraham and Isaac. To be gathered to one's people is the reason he wanted to be buried there. To be gathered to one's people in verse 29 there, is not simply a euphemism, a, a literary picture for death and burial. It's, it's much more than that, theologically speaking. To be gathered to one's people, as we see here in verse 33, it, it happens after death, but before burial. So it's distinct. Here in this passage, we learn that to be gathered to his people is actually for Jacob to be reunited with Isaac and with Abraham alive it's to be reunited with them alive it it's in line with Jesus's teaching of death and resurrection as far as the believer goes 1800 years ago when he 1800 years later when he's in uh a debate of sorts with the Sadducees, and they're grilling him about the resurrection. And Jesus, in Mark 12:26, tells them, "And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, I am the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living." It seems Jacob here, desiring to be gathered with his people, to be gathered with his fathers, got this. He grasped this concept of what it means to be in relationship with the eternal God. And it's interesting that in verse 33 here, uh, at his death, we're missing a phrase, just two little words. He died. That phrase is not in verse 33, but if you compare the death of Jacob to the death of his father Isaac and to the death of his father grandfather Abraham, that phrase is included for both Abraham and Isaac. He died. He died. But instead, here in our passage this morning, we see this this peculiar phrase. He drew up his feet into the bed. This is a picture of one cradling in the bed almost sleep like and what moses is doing here is he's emphasizing not the departure of jacob from the earth he's emphasizing his arrival to be with abraham to be with isaac this anticipation that his god is enough for what lies ahead in the next life. Now, hear me clearly, Moses is not downplaying the pain or the wrongness of death. Death is wrong. Death is our enemy. Death is God's enemy. In fact, in 50 chapter 50 verses 1 through 14, we see the word for weeping and lamenting and mourning eight times. So clearly the response to death is one of of great sadness. But what Moses is doing in this passage is he's he's highlighting the anticipation that Jacob has for what God will do through him, in him, for him in regards to their possession of the promised land. Somehow, some way, he believed that God would resurrect him, that he would possess Eternally, that land that God promised was his. Now, in verse 31 here of this, this farewell, in uh, my research commentator said this is really the centerpiece of his whole farewell address to his children. And there's two observations I want to point out to you. The first is in verse 31 here. Do you see the word there? It's mentioned three times. There they buried Abraham and Sarah there. They buried Isaac and Rebecca there. I buried Leah there is in a cave in the land of Canaan. It's in the promised land. It's a cave that Abraham purchased almost like a down payment for what he knew God would fulfill with the promised land regarding his family. And so, this there is interesting because there is not where Rachel, his beloved, was buried. Now, that's very peculiar. His whole life, Rachel, Rachel, Rachel. But here at the end of his life, it's there with Leah that he wants to be buried, not with Rachel. That shows a shift in the focus of Jacob in his perspective, his view of his walk with God and what mattered. And we also see that the mention of those who are buried there in that cave in the land of Canaan, Abraham, Sarah, not Hagar, Isaac, not Ishmael, Rebecca, Leah, not Zilpah, Bilhad, or even Rachel, And soon to be Jacob, not Esau. Everyone that's buried there is in the bloodline of the Messiah. Moses is showing us this this emphasis that Jacob is placing upon the covenant God had made. And the power of God at work through that covenant. Through these particular people. That would eventually lead to the Messiah. Now I'm not saying Jacob grasped. The Messiah would be the one who would raise people from the dead. But that's where it ended up. It's the Messiah who is the one who has the power and the ability to raise the dead back to life. So with all this attention to detail, Moses is showing us, as well as the original audience, a matured faith in Jacob from those 17 years of entering the land, speaking with Pharaoh, few and evil had been my days, So this incredible anticipation for what God would do even as he died. Jacob believed nothing, not even death, could undo or prevent God's promise made to him. Not even death could undo the promises of God. He, as well as Isaac, as well as Abraham, would dwell in the promised land. So he was able to look back, and the text doesn't tell us, but it seems he was able to have these eyes to see these spiritual markers in his life, these times where God had manifested himself. And in in surveying his life, he grabbed hold of those spiritual markers, those those times where God demonstrated his faith, demonstrated His power. We as believers in the Lord, our walk with God is also filled with these spiritual markers. Times where God answered a prayer. Times where God intervened. Times where God directed you, even when you didn't perceive His direction. It's these spiritual markers that as we reflect upon them, we too can build in us this anticipation, this eagerness for what God is doing in us and for what he will do when Christ returns. I remember my first semester at Alaska Bible College, I... uh, ...was home for Christmas break. I was in San Angelo. One of our assignments uh, the prior semester... ...was to to memorize a large portion of Matthew 6. Uh, The particular passage was uh, on do not be anxious. God takes care of the birds. He will take care of you. And so I had memorized that passage... ...and it was still rattling around in my brain. And I had really been leaning on that... ...because you see for the next semester... ...I didn't have all the money I needed... To pay for next semester's tuition. But I wasn't overly concerned. Tuition at Alaska Bible College was cheap at the time. So I could have uh, the ability to take out a loan. But that's not what I wanted to do. I instead just trusted God. I sought him first. I sought his kingdom first. And if God would provide the money for the tuition. Praise be to him. But if not. There would be other ways. I'm sure he would provide for me to. ...to continue my studies in in Bible college. The last night at my mom's house... ...without any request, without any petition, without any uh, warning... ...my aunt and uncle just showed up that night... ...and my aunt gave me an envelope with cash. Almost the exact amount I needed to pay for next semester's tuition. They just wanted to help, they said they most likely weren't even aware God was using them as an answer to my prayer. My point is is that that memory is a spiritual marker that I grab a hold of that stirs in me this eagerness for what God can and will do in me as he continues to make me like Christ, as he continues to use me in serving others. He manifested himself to me in that time. It put flesh, so to speak, on that passage. And we all have spiritual markers like that. And I encourage you, especially during this season of Advent, to reflect upon those, to record those, so that you can develop in you this anticipation for what he is doing and what he will do in and through you. Over our our lifetimes, his matchless faithfulness, it does manifest itself. And it does prove to us that Christ is enough for life and death. Let's look now at our second point, Jacob's burial. We just looked at his farewell. Now we're going to look at his burial. As we wait for the Lord's return, we embrace Christian traditions or practices like Advent that direct our hearts to look backward, remembering God's tender mercies towards us in Christ. As we wait for the Lord's return, we embrace certain Christian traditions or practices that call us to look backward, embracing Christ's tender mercies. So in the next passage here, uh, 51 through 14, we're going to look at Jacob's burial in Canaan. And what we're going to actually see here, it's, it's quite interesting. His burial is a dress rehearsal of sorts for the future exodus from Egypt into the land 400 years later. It's a type. It's a picture in part of what God would do in the future. So I'm going to show you just a few of these parallels. But if you find a good commentary, you'll find that there's lots of fascinating parallels... ...between Jacob's burial here and the exodus, which would occur 400 years later. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father... So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abba. Abel Mizerim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him, as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Mechpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephraim the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. As I said, there's lots of parallels here. And I'm going to just point a few of those out to you. Then I'm going to explain the significance of those parallels. First, we see the repeated use six times of this phrase, go up. I'm going to show you a handful. In verse 5, my father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die Therefore, you shall bury him. Now, therefore, please let me go up to bury my father. We see it again in verse 6. Pharaoh answered, go up. In verse 7, it's twice. So Joseph went up to bury his father. And with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh. This, This phrase, go up, is used frequently in the Exodus account 400 years later... In fact, it's used by Yahweh in the burning bush when he's instructing Moses about what's to transpire. We see in Exodus 3, verse 8, where the literal translation would be uh, that the Lord would cause his people to go up out of the land of Egypt into the place of the Canaanite. So it's this dress rehearsal of sorts that Israel, with his family, with The Egyptians are going up out of Egypt into Canaan. And we also see this odd detail in verse 8 where it mentions that the children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. This, This odd grouping of children, flocks, and herds. This is reflected in a future discussion that Pharaoh and Moses would have regarding the departure of the Hebrews from Egypt. And then we also see the odd accompaniment of the chariots and the horsemen of Pharaoh in verse 9 of 50. Now in Exodus 14, 400 years later, the chariots and the horsemen of Egypt... most certainly accompanied uh, the Hebrews, but in an antagonistic manner. Again, it's just another parallel as Moses is stringing... One going up to Egypt or out of Egypt and another going up out of Egypt. And then last and the most interesting of the details is we see in verses 10 and 11. We see their route into Canaan from Egypt. In verse 10 it says that they went to the threshing floor of Atad which is beyond the Jordan. It's on the other side ...of the promised land. And we see that again in verse 11. It's almost like a tag on. It says it is beyond the Jordan. So rather than... ...Jacob's burial procession... ...going from Egypt... ...straight up the Mediterranean... ...into the promised land... ...they cut across the desert... ...went around the Dead Sea... ...and then cut... ...across the Jordan River... ...it mirrors the same odd route... ...that Moses as they're wandering in the desert... ...and later Joshua as they enter the promised land took. So these parallels are a way for the nation of Israel... ...as they are wandering, as they're wondering... ...are we going to possess the land... As Moses is recording for them this history, he's showing them, yes, the land is yours. You will possess it. God has given you a picture through the burial procession of Jacob, whose name is Israel, entering into Israel. You as the descendants of Israel, the future nation of Israel, you also will enter the promised land. You will possess it. It was a way for them to look backward in order to look forward with anticipation. Looking backward at the faithfulness of God enabled them to look forward with anticipation for what God would do in and through them. And so we as the church, we also have been given these these pictures These events which are a type of sort, a rehearsal of sort, of God manifesting his power, manifesting his faithfulness, demonstrating that he will indeed fulfill the covenant promises. And for us, one of the biggest ones is a resurrection body. A body that is free from sin and death. And so we see 1,800 years later, another man... Buried in a cave. In Canaan. Lazarus. That word cave is used very infrequently in the New Testament. It's, it's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word for cave that we see here on the Old Testament. Lazarus died. The brother of Martha and Mary. Buried in a cave. And we see Jesus. We see Jesus come onto the stage. And we see him simply command that Lazarus. Come out. And he does. He's alive. Jesus demonstrated for us. That he is the resurrection of the life. That he has the ability, the power to enact the resurrection. Which we are promised as we have been united with him by the spirit. So how do we cultivate in us. In anticipation, as as we live our lives in the busyness of of Christmas... ...as we struggle in in a broken, uh, a fallen world... ...how do we create in our hearts this eagerness for what God is doing... ...for what He will do when Christ returns? We look backward in order to look forward... We look backward at all that God has done in Christ those tender mercies in our own personal walk with God we look backward we grab a hold of those, we embrace those we meditate upon those and in that it stirs in us this anticipation this eagerness for what he will do as we walk forward with God, both ...today in whatever season of life you find yourself... ...but also in the eternal future. As we face death, which we all will one day. And so today is Advent. It's the first day of Advent. Advent is a tradition or a practice that the church keeps on a yearly basis. It's the four Sundays prior to Christmas. And the word Advent simply means coming or arrival the first coming of Christ the mercy that we received by his death and resurrection the eternal life we received by faith and his future coming when he will return in power or he will give us the fullness of the promises we have in the covenant when he will judge the unbelievers and so during this season of advent it it's a special time set aside to simultaneously look backward and forward. And so we will, we will participate during our church service in Advent. But I encourage you at home to set aside time reflecting on what he has done. So that it stirs in you this anticipation, this eagerness for what he can and will do. Before we light the first advent candle, I want to read to you from God's word. John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of Life. At this time, I'm going to give us just a minute. For you to meditate, for you to pray, but just to block out, just for a minute, all the distractions to look backward the tender mercies we have in Christ, the faithfulness that you've experienced in your walk with God. And then I'll close in a prayer and, and we'll be dismissed. So just take a minute. And so our great God, we come to you. We praise you for the work that you have done in us through your son. We praise you for the hope we have for the eternal life that we have been given, that we do possess. Help us during this season of Advent to look backward at your tender mercies. And to grab hold of those. And I pray, dear God, that you would stir in us this eagerness, this anticipation for what you are doing and what you will do, especially once Christ returns. Help us, Lord, as we are finite creatures who so easily get caught up in the hustle and bustle. And and Lord, as, as we struggle with all the pain and all the hurt that we do have as we live in this fallen, broken world. I pray that your mercy would break through, that you would allow us moments to glimpse upon your faithfulness. And I pray that you would do something in us so that we could be a people who look forward to your son's return. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace in Christ. It's in his name we pray. If you would rise to your feet. Go now in the mercy of our Savior who loves us. And go be people who walk by the light. People of hope. People who look to God to provide for all of our needs, amen.